Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Spotlight. I'm Annie Dickerson. And I'm Julie Lamb. Together, we're the founders of Good Egg Investments and creators of the Real Estate Accelerator. We help real estate investors and syndicators build their brands, find the right investors for their deals, and scale their businesses so they can do more and bigger deals. We believe that everyone has the power to make an impact through raising capital and helping people achieve financial freedom through real estate. We invite you to join the Real Estate Syndication Spotlight Facebook group so we can amplify our impact together. We know you're going to love this episode. And hey, be sure to stick around to the end of the show because we're going to reveal how you can be our next guest on one of the fastest growing real estate podcasts on the planet. Ready? Let's go. Hey there, welcome back friends. I'm really excited for this episode of Real Estate Syndication Spotlight brought to you by our good friends at Good Egg Investment. And of course, I am your host, Rye Russell. And joining me today is Brian Adams to share with us his real estate journey, how he started all the way to the amazing projects that he is working on today. And Brian, we're really excited to have you. Yeah, thanks, Rye. I look forward to it. Well, I'm really excited to learn how you got started because I didn't, and I think most people in the audience, none of us woke up one morning and said, aha, I know it, I've got it all figured out. And so we're always so fascinated to learn about the journeys that the entrepreneurs have taken to join us today. So Brian, share with us, please. Yeah, absolutely. So mine, um, was maybe a little bit different than most. I'm a recovering attorney. So I practiced law for a few years and I was actually a prosecutor here in Nashville, Davidson County. So I did not practice commercial real estate law per se, but I had the great fortune and privilege to marry into an affluent family that has a single family office, which uh, for people listening who might not be familiar, it's essentially an asset management firm for the benefit of all the lineal descendants of a patriarch or a matriarch. And when I joined the family board, I got exposure to the private investments we were making in commercial real estate as a co-GP, as an LP, et cetera. And what I realized very quickly was there was a problem in that marketplace. High net worth individuals and even ultra affluent families had trouble accessing direct co-investment opportunities that created good cash on cash yield and that took advantage of all the tax benefits that come from direct real estate ownership. Oftentimes, these were fund-to-fund vehicles or synthetic REITs or other fee-heavy, opaque uh, investments with managers that they didn't have a good relationship with. So I saw a problem in an inefficient market, and my partner and I uh, created the firm to address those issues and serve those clients. Amazing. Now, Brian, can you tell me, like, what is the first real estate project that you worked on that you're like, okay, I think I got this. I think I know how this is supposed to operate. (laughs) Um, I've been doing this 11 years. So to give people context, we run about um, over two and a half million square feet. It's roughly $400 million portfolio and we're in 14 markets. 
So uh, the first deal we did 11 years ago, we had the great fortune of being in Nashville, Tennessee, after the Great Recession, during a huge run-up in pricing. So it's really a function of timing. We were able to, to achieve some pretty big wins there uh, just by virtue of being in the right place at the right time. But frankly, I made a huge number of mistakes um, over the course of probably five or six years starting the company. And it's really only been, in my opinion, the last four or five years that I truly understand the right way to structure the company to have the infrastructure allowable uh, or that would afford you the ability to scale efficiently. So um, <laughs> I would say that, you know, we continue to try to progress, but once we started syndicating as opposed to raising funds, that's really when we were able to hit our stride, in my opinion, that's been the last five or six years. Now, for those in the audience that are kind of curious, you know, what the difference might be between running a large fund versus syndicating, you know, do you mind kind of breaking that down and what that means to you? Sure. So a fund is a blind pool co-mingled investment vehicle, right? So when I come in and pitch you for investment, I'm telling you what I think I can achieve, what my goals are, but I don't have any... I don't have any deals in the pipeline per se. I don't own anything. I'm not in control of anything. I'm just giving you a broad sketch of what I hope to achieve. And you say, okay, well, I'll give you, I'll invest $100 and I will call that $100 over the span of three to four years. And I will invest that money. Uh, as I described, I would hope in, in terms of the opportunities I, I hope to find in the marketplace. So it's great from a manager standpoint because I have discretionary capital. I actually give you notice within two weeks, you have to fund your commitment. I can use that capital to go buy a property. Now, the downside I think is, it's a very difficult product type for high net worth individuals and families to understand the mechanics of. And as you alluded to, being a fund manager is its own business separate and apart from actually doing these real estate investments, right? So administering the fund, um, doing the proper accounting, tax, et cetera, is a lot of work and it requires a lot of overhead and you need to have a special skill set there. A syndicator or a fundless sponsor uh, is somebody who uh, don't have discretionary capital. We go, we find an opportunity, we get control of that opportunity and then we send it out to a network of investors that we've kind of told what we're hoping to achieve. And then they come in and invest on just the property level. So they are our joint venture partners but only within that one particular property. So as opposed to having exposure to 10 different deals in a fund format, they're only coming in on this one property in Chattanooga or Cincinnati or Texas or wherever it might be. So there's no exposure to any other deals. From a business standpoint, the syndication model, it's a little scary, right? Because you're really at risk when you go and look to try to buy something because you don't necessarily have the money uh, accessible. But I would say that for our logical investor base, which are all non-institutional accredited investors, it really does work much better for them because they can pick and choose the risk, the profile and the timing that's right for them, as opposed to making a 10 year commitment into a blind pool, they can say, okay, I just made, uh, I just had a liquidity event or I'm extra heavy on cash right now, or I wanna take some money out of the market. And I really like this uh, location because I used to live there X, Y, Z they can really rifle shot their approach as opposed to getting exposure um, in, in kind of a, a fun vehicle. So, the, but the downside is obviously um, 
you really have to have a sales and marketing infrastructure to manage the volume, right? So for us, we have about 550 investors active today and our distribution list is probably around 5,000 people. So that is its own business as well. You've got to make sure that you've got the correct uh, reporting, investor relations, uh, marketing and sales in order to make that machine run. But we've put a lot of time and energy into that. So I feel very confident with where the business is today. That's amazing. Thank you so much for breaking that down. And so to me, in summary there, you can really kind of see the fund as, you know, maybe a little bit lower risk. You know, you've, you're spreading that risk out a multiple of properties, but has its own cons as, as anything does, where the syndication is a little bit more risk, but a little bit more flexibility on the returns, because there's so many different vehicles there for managing one property at a time. Yeah, I think that's right. And oftentimes, a fund makes a lot of sense for larger investors that want to allocate a large amount of capital into an investment thesis or criteria that they have. Sure. So it can be a great fit for them. But for in my opinion, kind of the mass affluent or, or even the ultra affluent, it can just be a challenging vehicle for real estate. I think it might make sense for venture capital or other asset classes, but for real estate, which is tangible, people can understand it. We all kind of experience in our day-to-day -day lives. Uh, for what we're doing, a fund was really suboptimal. Amazing. And so speaking of which, like you specifically, when you are evaluating a deal. What is what is your favorite type of deal? And then how do you evaluate it to make sure it's the right one for you and your portfolio? Yeah. And, and I actually did a whole presentation about this. If you want to go check out our website, AccelsiorGP.com, you can download it, but it's how to raise capital as a first-time entrepreneur. And I think oftentimes we're Real estate is a very ego-driven alpha male business where people kind of say, I'm really smart. I found a good deal. You should invest with me. Sure. And I reverse engineered it. So what I did was I went to my logical investor base and I asked them what they wanted and it paid me a complete picture of what that experience would be like as a journey, as an investor. And the through line was really pretty straightforward. And so what we do is three things, direct co-investment, double digit cash and cash yields, tax benefits that come from direct real estate ownership. And, and so what that looks like for us from a commercial real estate standpoint, it may change deal by deal, office, industrial, flex, medical. Those are the places that we play in. And we like secondary markets because we can buy at decent cap rate valuations, but it all fundamentally goes to achieving those three pain points that our investor base has. So speaking of that part, how do you manage effectively investor relations, because that's something that is, it's obviously so critical to let's say what's right in front of you, but it's really astronomically more important than that in terms of the grand scheme in the long term. So do you mind kind of breaking down, how do you look at investor relations, maybe from a short-term approach and then also from a large term? Yeah, absolutely. And this is where I made huge mistakes early in my career. Um, I did not appreciate the fact that, and this is interesting because investors don't really ask these questions, but you have the real estate deals themselves, right? That need to make sense. But if you're going to scale, especially in the syndication business where 
the ability to have lower minimums is contingent on the sponsor's ability to raise capital. You need to have investor relations, marketing, sales, all really tied in together. And you need to put money and resources to work in those spaces. Otherwise, you're going to have great real estate deals, but a dysfunctional company. And, and so the way that we look at it is we have kind of the simple things, which I think is baseline for everybody today, which is a 24-7, 365 day, you know, accessible investor portal through Juniper Square, which is terrific. And it's about setting expectations and having that transparent communication with our investors. So what you can expect is monthly P&L uh, cash balance statements from the asset level, quarterly commentary, both on the asset and the market, which that property is in. And then if you contact us, somebody from the team will respond in 24 hours, except if it's on the weekend. I don't take business calls on the weekend typically, because that's the time I spend for myself and my family. But my advice would be, there's no such thing as providing too much information or transparency. And today with a lot of these technological tools, even five years ago that didn't exist, it's really efficient. It can be hard to migrate all that data in, but once you start doing it, the response from the investors is gonna be terrific. And frankly, the only way to manage this kind of volume is by having institutional level marketing, investor relations and reporting in my opinion, because otherwise you'll be inundated and deluged with phone calls and meetings that are just not gonna be productive for you or the investor. Now, Brian, you said two things in there that I think to much of our audience, they might seem almost contradictory. You said one, that the weekends are for you and your family. It seems like that's protected time. But so many of us, right, we're to grind, you never stop, it's never done. The answer is more. And then you said, well, the answer is more, more data, more, it seems like more automation. And you can never not, I guess you can never over communicate to your investors. So how does one have the weekend and protect that time, which should be sacred to all of us and also not sacrifice or skimp on the details? Yeah, so as, as Brene Brown says, clear is kind. And, and I think a big challenge that GPs and sponsors have in this space is that they overpromise or they don't wanna have the difficult conversation on the front end. They don't manage expectations from the, their clients, from their investors and boundaries get blurred. So for me, I just come outright when, when I pitch a deal or at this point when I have legacy investors, they understand exactly what to expect. And I think if you come out and say it and you provide a rationale supporting it, I don't think you're going to get a lot of pushback from your investors, frankly. If I say, hey, starting at 5 p.m., 6 p.m. Central Time on Friday, I start to go offline. And of course, if something's critically important, everyone has my cell phone. I mean, no one really uses it, but they can text me or call me if they need to. And somebody from the team will respond. But for the most part, I'm not doing long calls or I'm staying off email over the weekend because for me to be productive, I need that time to recharge the batteries. And I've done it both ways. I've done the 100-hour work weeks. I've done the, the terrible travel. I've put in the time. And it may seem like you're doing things, but I don't think you're actually creating a lot of value for the enterprise because by Monday, you're burned out and it's not sustainable. So the, the other part of your question is, you know, how do I reconcile that with this ultimate transparency? And it's by leveraging technology and delegating to my team. I have 15 people in the company. And what I've learned the hard way is I need to 
I need to sublimate my ego and not pretend like I can effectively asset manage, make acquisitions, do marketing and do investor relations and do reporting and steer the ship. It's just not possible. So I need to build trust within the team. I've got a team that I like a lot. I think they work really hard and they can handle a lot of that work for me so that I can focus on long-term strategy and how to provide value for the enterprise and my investors. But technology is huge. I mean, Dropbox, drone footage, uh, we record interviews with our third-party local property manager and leasing brokers to talk about what they're seeing on the ground in the property. And again, it doesn't take a lot of effort or time, frankly, those are five or 10 minute recorded conversations. But as an investor, you have more information that you could probably handle, right? So the issue is when you don't give everything to everybody, people's natural tendency is to go to a very dark place and they make terrible assumptions about what's happening. This is a industry where people understand they're taking risks to get outside rewards, but they're not signing up for really crummy communication reporting. And in my opinion, that's just, even if it's bad news, giving it to them in a, in a fully fleshed out institutional style reporting structure, which doesn't take that much work or effort, it, it, it's inexcusable in my opinion. And the work and effort is probably front loaded. It's one, it's almost like you cannot afford to not do it. And, and that's where I think it's really challenging for people who are aspiring entrepreneurs who want to get into this space because they don't realize these tools cost money and this infrastructure costs money. And you can't just be a quote unquote deal guy because deal guys can live and breathe every once in a while, but have a sustainable, scalable, efficient company. And again, I go back to, you know, investors ask, well, why are you putting so many resources into gated content and webinars, et cetera? It's like, listen, if you want to be able to invest in a $20 million building at a $50,000 minimum, I need to be able to have the infrastructure to go out and raise a lot of capital from a lot of people. Right. And so I need to be focusing my efforts on that because that's how, this democratization of access to alternatives will work. That's how you can have fractional ownership on these larger assets and get exposure to these institutional level and quality deals. So um, I, I just think now with a lot of these technological advances within the prop tech space, there's some really cool solutions that increasingly are, are more and more inexpensive, but um, it does need to be top of mind in my opinion to be successful in this business. Well, that's some. Thank you so much for sharing those insights with me, Brian. And I'm curious, you know, for those in the audience that are like, "All right, I love Brian. I get it." And you know, I, I'm curious, you know, what are the types of deals? Just straight up, if you know that if I was an investor, I'm going to call you for. Yeah. Again, we're solving for those three things, right? If you want access to direct uh, co-investment opportunities in the commercial real estate space. If you're looking to solve for a 10% or plus cash on cash yield and you want your K1 to show a loss, give me a call. Now, the assets might be different. I can give you an example of one that we um, are closing hopefully tomorrow in Chattanooga. Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's an $11 million acquisition off market directly from the ownership group themselves. It's going to be about 11 to 12% cash on cash yield, 95% occupied. It's a single story flex product, which is kind of a mullet of commercial real estate. It's office or retail in the front, but industrial distribution in the back. It's a really great product type. 
because asset management is, is low. These are triple net leases, which means the tenants are responsible for all of the operating expenses like taxes and insurance, et cetera. And in today's world with COVID, having single access points with no common areas or no shared uh, facilities, they're really attracted to a lot of tenants. So um, that's kind of the product type. That's, the, that's what we're solving for from a return standpoint. And a market like Chattanooga is one that we like a lot. And you know, frankly, to be competitive, we had to go down on our price point. I, th I think five years ago, we would be $15 million plus deals. Now, with it's just so competitive with so much capital out there that that 10 to $12 million price point is really our sweet spot now, if not less. Amazing. And if we're interested in learning more about these deals, what's the best way for us to find out more about your company and your offerings? Yeah, I'm super active on LinkedIn. So if you just uh, connect with me or shoot me a note, I'm happy to uh, find some time to talk. Uh, Brian Adams, Excelsior Capital. Or you can go to the website, excelsiorgp.com. We have a ton of resources there. That's how you can learn more about the investment opportunities. And we put out white papers, blogs, uh, webinars about real estate, but also just alternative assets in general and best practices. So I'd encourage people to go check that out if they want to learn more about who we are and what we do. Incredible. And of course, we will add both of those links to our show notes. So all of you in the audience can check those out, connect with Brian and learn more about Excelsior Capital. And so we are so grateful to all of you tuning in and joining us today. Brian, I'm extremely grateful for you joining us and sharing some of your wisdom and insights. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Appreciate it. And we will see you all on the next episode of Real Estate Syndication Spotlight, brought to you by Good Egg Investments. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Spotlight. If you are a real estate investor or syndicator who would like to be on this podcast, please visit syndicationspotlight.com. And please also join the Real Estate Syndication Spotlight Facebook group so we can connect with you and learn more about you. And if you got something out of this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe to this show and give us a rating and review. We promise to read your feedback and take action to continue to make this show even better and more valuable for the real estate syndication community. My name is Annie Dickerson. And I'm Julie Lamb. Thanks for listening. And thank you for being a part of the real estate syndication spotlight community.